Well, thank you very much for taking the time to attend this webinar to discuss the outlook of global equities and the relative attractiveness of uh, emerging markets to DM equities. We appreciate the extra effort to join this webinar, and we hope we find you and your loved ones uh, well. We reiterate that JP Morgan Research is here to help you with informed views on the global and local macroeconomic scenarios and investment insights. If you want to deep dive into those topics, please take a look at JP Morgan Markets portal at jpmm.com. My name is Pedro Martins, JPM Chief EM Equity Strategist, and today I have two colleagues joining this call. Dubrav Kolakos Pujas, JPM Chief Global and US Equity Strategist, and Mislav Mateika, JPM Head of Global Equity Strategy and European Equity Strategy as well. We will conduct this panel in the Q&A format, and we have prepared a few questions to each other based in some of the questions that you sent us ahead of time. So thank you for engagement, and you can keep them coming. So you can send them electronically to any of us in this call, and you do your best to uh, insert the calls uh, in, in our speech. Uh, but before we start, all of us have an ask uh, uh, to you, which is to vote JP Morgan five stars in the up and coming uh, Latin American uh, institutional investor campaign that starts uh, next Monday, uh, Feb 27th. Uh, you can consider us for equity strategy thematic research, economics, ESG, Brazil, or any other category where you sense JP Morgan has helped you. So Dubravko and Mislav, thank you very much for taking the time. Without uh, further ado, let me make some opening comments and prompt the first question uh, to Dubravko. So Dubravko, from, from my perspective, we are seeing powerful catalysts for the inflow of funds uh, to EM equities uh, this year. Uh, in one hand, there is lower conviction on US equities to outperform, given EPS and derating risks. Uh, and this is a pretty strong contrast uh, to what have been seen in the 2012 to 2021 period. And on the other hand, on the EM merits, there are nice optionalities on the table. I would say number one, China to be the only big economy accelerating growth this year, next year, boosting the EM GDP velocity relative to developed markets. Number two, under allocation, coupled with undervaluation of EM equities that can sustain returns relative to developed markets. And on, on that longer term, I would say global investors have yet to allocate to EM bonds and equity markets significantly, having largely avoided the asset class for a decade or so. And number three, the optionality uh, from the dollar and rate speaking, which is a hot surface to be discussing right now. But for reference, EM equities historical mid and ad events is 3.4% for each 1% weaker broader dollar index. And Obviously, we're talking about big numbers of potential inflow of funds to EM equities that were explored in our recent report. Um, we're talking about potentially $570 billion of potential inflow to EMs simply to get global investors back to the historical average allocation. 
So with that intro, the questions to you are, do you agree on the lower conviction on US equities to outperform this year? So more broadly, what's your view for the US equity market outlook? Where are we in the growth policy trade-off? And there is obviously the, the, the question is, why the heck US equity markets are so strong here to date? Sure. Uh, yeah, thank you. You know, thank you for that, Pedro. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess good morning, good afternoon, and maybe for some of you, good, good evening. Um, so I guess just taking a very quick step, step back, um, our, um, our house view here on, on equities um, is negative. Uh, we just simply don't see a very compelling risk reward for broadly speaking, risky assets, but certainly equities within that camp as well. Um, um, I, I would say that, uh, you know, in the U.S., for instance, when I look at even the growth policy trade-off, it doesn't look that attractive. Um, there is a growing disconnect between equities and, and rates or equity multiples, equity risk premia and rates, uh, whether you look at it in nominal terms or for that matter, even in, in, in sort of re real terms. Um, there definitely has been, I would say, a fair deal of excitement in terms of buying equities or chasing sort of this, um, well, I, I don't even know, I, I don't want to say this like upswing because equities really, S&P hasn't really moved that much since December 1st of last year. It's basically been chopping sideways. You know, December 1st of last year, S&P was at 4,100. We're not even there now. But nonetheless, there's definitely been sort of, you know, a hard dose of, you know, excitement. Um, I wouldn't be inclined to chase. Um, and I know that many people uh, have been going back into tech. Tech and sort of long duration stocks have been definitely part of the leadership uh, year to date. And many have been sort of floating around this narrative around Goldilocks because, hey, growth is not falling off the cliff. And at the same time, look, hey, we're getting better and better inflation data. And to me, just Goldilocks is just like the completely wrong term to use in the current backdrop where you have still interest rates at like four and a half, five percent for inflation that maybe it's coming down a bit, but still continues to be fairly sticky in the four percent range. And and so I, I have a hard time with the Goldilocks kind of type type scenario. What I think is simply more likely uh, is either one of the following. You know, if the fundamental side does remain resilient for longer, and when you look at some of the more recent data, uh, that seems to be the case. You look at the job numbers, you look at some of the even um, you know, um, you know, CPI, PPI numbers. Well, in that case, I think cost of capital is simply going to stay elevated for longer or perhaps goes even higher, right? Uh, and I think the bond market is definitely sniffing that out and is pricing that in and it's converging towards what I think is believed to be future Fed policy. But I think the equity market at the same time is kind of ignoring that a little bit. And thus, you're basically looking at, a, I would say, at a pretty stretched multiple relative to rates from a historical perspective. Um, so if, if fundamentals remain okay for longer, for another three months, for another six months, for another nine months, then I just simply think that the market simply entered this year with a somewhat wrong view in terms of rates and inflation, right? And so the multiple remains under pressure and certainly US uh, and an index like the S&P 500, which still has a fair, fair, fairly high dose of long duration type exposure, I think is at higher risk versus other parts of the global equity benchmark or international equities, let's say, uh, that, that Misla will talk more about. Um, the other scenario is just simply that, look, at some point, I think the inevitable is 
we will face a recession. And I think in that scenario, yes, earnings will have a lot more to come down. And so I just think it's, a, it's, it's just a very bad mix for equities. Uh, reason why the markets, I think, have been going up, um, some of the reasons I would say simply, yes, look, sentiment perhaps was too negative um, in 4Q of last year. Uh, you know, the call on the street from many different players was that, yeah, we are going to go into recession beginning of this year. Um, and that didn't quite work out, right? And so sentiment is having a bit of a uh, comeback. Uh, positioning, which was also very, very low, has also bounced back. A lot of that has been a function of volatility, both in the bond space as well as in the equity space, normalizing. Um, and even though positioning, I don't think, is sort of bullish by any means now or is above average, it has come up a decent amount from those lows. And sentiment, similarly, and some of you may disagree with this, but based on a lot of client calls that I've been having with people, and again, strip out the last few days where I know the markets have been down, generally speaking, sentiment is positive. It's not negative. I don't hear many people talking about recession. I don't hear anyone talking anymore about hard landing. The, the story here is people say, is a soft landing or no landing, right? That's sort of a new cycle, which I think is, for me, it's a bit hard to believe. But um, anyhow, so I, I, I think the sort of Goldilocks and this sort of chase for tech and all of that kind of lifting the market, I, I just think it's a very, very fine line to walk. Um, and the reality is that we simply have rates, uh, cost of capital that's, that's simply higher, um, and I think uh, earnings, more so than the underlying economy, including areas like corporate margins, I think continue to basically face downward pressure. And so you asked me about EM, uh, you asked me about international equities. Look, EM is a higher beta play than US. US historically has been a bit of a lower beta play. And so, yes, I mean, look, if we go into a broad-based recession, I don't think EM necessarily will outperform. But for as long as the developed world or U.S., let's say, continues to sort of chug along or the decline continues to be gradual, I do think that the EM side certainly has, uh, on a relative basis, an upper hand. China, obviously, I don't think is done reopening, and the spillover effects of that haven't really been felt. Uh, at some point, China is going to send 100 million people to start traveling the world. That hasn't really happened. Uh, and then, frankly, Pedro, you know, you sit in Sao Paulo. What's not to like about Brazil here when sentiment is so darn bombed out? And when you talk to so many local folks that say, I can't touch Brazil equities with a 10-foot pole. So I, I kind of want to take a bit of the opposite side of the trade versus, let's say, the U.S., where now you're again back into this, call it retail frenzy and retail chase and retail craze that, that I just don't think, uh, you know, sustains. So back to you, Pedro. Thank you very much for that and for the relative love sent to Sao Paulo at this point, right? So let's uh, flip to Mislav here. So uh, Mislav, um, when US equities are, are not working or not perceived as attractive, global investors tend to look for alternatives and so-called international equities or, or ex-US equities. And in most cases, uh, this is, you have three heads there, right? So Europe, Japan, and EM. So what's your thesis for ex-US equities? So do you believe Europe and Japan will be serious competition for EM equities this year? Hmm. Uh, thanks. So I would say first, you know, when people are nervous or scared or worried about the US, they're not looking for any opportunities in my view anywhere. <laughs> Uh, uh, but um, I would say, I would say, uh, Pedro, that um, 
know, from my side, you know, we have been overweight international uh, versus the US uh, through the whole of last year. And I think that story uh, makes sense, uh, even as I believe that um, Q1 will be the, the peak of the market uh, for this uh, year broadly. And, uh, and look, you know, simply, you know, uh, six months ago, um, as Dubravko was saying as well, you think about growth outlook, people had recession as 100% certainty already started. At the same time, everybody was super bearish on earnings and on China. And the view was Fed will just keep going until it breaks and inflation remains a huge problem. And, and I think, and, you know, so, so, so last summer, I think being bullish was definitely, you know, non-consensus and positioning was super light. So, so some of the positives that we were hoping for, you know, gas price in Europe falling because there is no space to put uh, the supply in or China reopening or, or simply the call from October, the peak in the dollar, peak in bond yields, peak in inflation. That is very powerful when everybody was looking the other way. But, you know, Eurostox 50 is up 30% since the low. It's actually back to the high. Cyclicals are at a new high. And, and, and more than the market move, and more simply than the positioning, which is clearly not bearish anymore, maybe it's in the top half, and more than the, than the kind of a, this kind of a mentality of, of a chase, it's really the disconnect, the, the basic disconnect that people have flipped from negative or negative into the story of, look, it's um, immaculate disinflation. Um, so inflation goes down and Fed will be done, but there is not going to be any pain anywhere. No pain in credit market, no pain in labor market, and no pain in the earnings. And that's what I struggled with. So, so we were looking for positive catalysts and thinking that in Q1, the market still positioning-wise, sentiment-wise, seasonals-wise, uh, moves up, but Q1, I would say, should not be morphing into Q2 and Q3 because you do have um, a fundamental issue that market is now complacent on both rates and on the earnings. So peak margins on one side, which might not be sustainable, and on the other side, the view that multiples, exactly as Dubravko says, 18 and a half times S&P 500 on wrong earnings when real rates are probably going to go higher rather than lower from here and fed is not going to even pause let alone pivot is going to actually continue for longer that's a problem so given that normally you know as i said at the beginning you know one should be bearish on everything else even more and as Braco said as well emerging markets are high beta japan is a high beta dax is a high beta eurostox 50 is a high beta so why should one go against the historical and why is there maybe more sense to say this time around like we were saying in the last 12 months in the last 12 months markets were down you know S&P 500 finished last year down good double digit UK was up in absolute terms in in dollar terms uh, most of the markets outperformed the S&P 500 even on the way down even though people were super bearish let's say on Europe and on the other things so so the question is is there a chance that the bearish US call materializes? And of course, there is not going to be a decoupling, but international markets are not doing the usual, just underperform the falling US even more. Or 
US is not exceptional. And if there is a weakness, it's to do with the US. And that's what I think is an interesting story. Usually you have automatic accelerators on the downside in Europe, which are banks and periphery. For once, European banks are well capitalized into the potential turn. They have four times more capital now than they had ahead of the Lehman Brothers. For once, ECB knows what to do before the market forces them to protect peripheral spreads because they have all the programs in place already. And look, um, as was said already before by the Bracco, you know, China reopening, I think it's running long in the tooth and it's fully out in the open, but it is a real story. And gas price collapse is hugely important for Europe. So I do think there's a very important alternative. I think it's right that Europe is by far the best performing region this year, given how negative people were, because China reopening is a play on Europe, ultimately indirectly, or Europe is a play on China reopening, and the gas price crash uh, is a hugely net positive for Europe. And valuations, just to finish off on that point, yeah, US is on 18 and a half times wrong earnings. Europe is on wrong earnings as well in that kind of a context, but on 12, and UK on 10 and Japan on 12. So I think the bearish call makes sense over the next six, nine, 12 months from these levels, but is the best way to express the bearish call by shorting Eurostox 50 or DAX or Japan or FTSE 100? Um, probably not. And that is where we would be different. So I do think for EM, there is a, there is a credible alternative this time around. Well, I take candle for that, uh, Mislav, uh, because it didn't work for the past many years, right? So, but for reference, EM is uh, trading right now 11.5 times forward PE on a consensus earnings contraction of 6% for this year, which I consider credible. So I think like uh, the other alternatives, XUS, you have value and I think earnings are in the right place. Now, let me bring in uh, China uh, into the mix here and, and then pick on your brain. So China back to strong growth has obviously important implications for the rest of EM. The first one is on the asset class, uh, EM equity. So China lack of growth was one of the biggest headwinds to EM over the past few years. And we are forecasting here, you can say, long-lasting above-trend growth with China uh, at 5.6% uh, GDP growth this year, 6% next year, capturing the full benefit of reopening. The second one is on flows uh, within EM equities. So the clients we talk, they continue to have long-term concerns about China common prosperity, geopolitics. But in our view, those clients in practical terms are, are doing two things. Buying China EM to bring their allocation closer to neutral. You can say managing track and error. And the other thing they're doing, they're buying indirect China as clients do not want to be over allocated to that market. Uh, obviously, EM Asia X China stands to benefit the most from the China recovery uh, that is on tourist investment flows, notably the ASEAN countries. For CMEA and Latin America, fiscal, monetary, commodity cycles are the dominant drivers. 
and EM disinflation and a better China growth should open space for EM rate cuts. It could start as soon as the second quarter of this year, most likely third quarter of this year. Um, and within those markets, so Lactan is forecasted to lead the pack on the easing, followed by CIMIA, while EM Asia is going to be more in sync with the Fed, or, or we can say it's a more prolonged pause. So questions to Dubravko first. As you said, Dubravko, uh, JP Morgan Global Asset Allocation Team is underweight on equities, but I want to pick your brain on something more into that. Can you please elaborate why is this view? And do you see risk to markets, to equities, if cost of capital stays uh, elevated for longer? And the question for us in EM, can EM and China do well while the asset class global equities is unfavored? So, you know, as, 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 as I mentioned, you know, briefly earlier, um, yeah, we just don't see it that compelling of a risk reward for equities. And that doesn't mean that equities have to crash imminently. But like I said, I think best case scenario, I think just have a range bound chop. Um, equities last year didn't really have much of a competitor. This year, I think fixed income is definitely a much stronger competitor for equities. When you have short term, you know, rates, uh, you know, yielding four and a half, five percent in some case. Uh, so I think, you know, you take that versus whatever shareholder yield for S&P or earnings yield for S&P of roughly 4.7, 4.9, why, why sort of take all this risk and uncertainty uh, when you're kind of getting five percent for, you know, sort of for free? I don't want to say for free, but sort of risk free, right? Uh, so, so I, I do think that the, the relative angle for equities is just simply uh, not as compelling, uh, not as compelling. Um, and and I, I think fixed income definitely, you know, our house views that it has an upper hand here. Um, now, uh, the, the other thing that I would mention is um, I do think that risky assets and equities have benefited a little bit from maybe we could call it some form of liquidity honeymoon period. That, and call it somewhat easier financial conditions since October of last year. When you sort of look at things like G4, G5, central bank balance sheets, they haven't really been contracting. If anything, they have been marginally expanding. Uh, the BOJ and the PBOC situation is certainly helping. And even, I would say, domestically in the U.S., uh, you look at sort of this whole release of reserves by the general treasury account, uh, you could argue that's giving you some form of fiscal easing. You know, that can persist for another month or two, sure. But I think as you get into the month of May, month of June, as you start thinking about the second half of this year, I do think you're going to start to face also a liquidity wall, uh, which I think will then turn again more negative for, for equities and risky assets. And there's no reason why the market is not going to start thinking about, about this sort of soon enough. So th that's, again, I would say another reason. Um, and then geopolitics, I would just throw out there. No one cares about geopolitics anymore. The world is fine after we were all like freaked out about it six months ago. And no one asked the question about Russia, Ukraine anymore. Seems like I don't think there's much of a concern these days on the sort of US-China side. But on the former, especially, I would say tensions continue to rise. And no one really knows how this situation is going to play out. And no one knows if, hey, there ends up being some form of misstep. So very hard to manage your portfolio against that risk. But that tail risk is not going down. I would say, if anything, is gradually moving higher, right? And so. 
Yes, we just think simply think that again, portfolio positioning should be more defensive. Fixed income versus equities makes sense to us. And similarly, I would say within equities, I would be in favor of a more defensive, higher quality trade, and definitely not be chasing the junk rally, the unprofitable, the low quality trade that's been in favor and involved sort of this this year. Um, cost of capital. If cost of capital stays elevated for longer, and I've had quite a few, I would say pretty senior investor, CIO level that said, well, who gives a shit if, if Fed funds is 4.755, five and a quarter? Look, the market doesn't seem to care. Well, I actually think it matters quite a lot. It's just, it's not mattering this moment, but it's gonna come to bite us. If cost of capital stays elevated, um, you're already starting to see uh, headlines on the commercial real estate side. Uh, that, that problem is not going away. That's a bit of a ticking bomb. You look at various parts of the US, whether it's West Coast, LA, uh, San Francisco, you look at Chicago, you got millions of uh, commercial square footage that's basically sitting empty. Uh, you have, from what I understand, a, a, a first sizable tranche of debt that's expiring in the commercial real estate side uh, end of next year. People will start to care about that uh, later this year, right? Uh, you look at the bank loan market. It's a 1.4 trillion market, slightly bigger than high yield. By definition, it's all floating. And from everything I'm seeing and hearing, uh, a very small percentage of that is actually hedged. So that's going to be biting into the balance sheets of corporates with time, especially if cost of capital stays elevated. And all the data points that we're getting recently is that cost of capital probably is not going to move down any, anytime soon. And so I do think that there's various risks on the horizon given how restrictive rates and cost of capital is, uh, that the market is underappreciating and they will be resurfacing more and more in the next three, six, 12 months. I didn't say, you know, the whole private equity world, the whole LBO uh, complex, what's gonna happen there? What's the end game? So, and, and look, there is risk that all of this simply spills over uh, and financial conditions at some point start turning again, to, you know, tighter. And, and I, I wouldn't want to be in, in, on the equity side and certainly not on the high beta sort of unprofitable uh, equity segment when, when, when that happens. And we're seeing more and more signs of it. So it's just not a compelling risk reward. That's, that's my thinking. I think in order to really uh, embrace the equity uh, trade here in a positive fashion, your view for S&P, just taking it simply, should not be that S&P is going to be up this year 10% or 15%. It should better be that S&P is going to be up 20 25%, given simply what you can get on the fixed income side. And I just think that's too high of an ask because for that, you really, really would need to see a sizable upcycle in earnings. And, and I, just, I just think that's, that's, that's a hard one, uh, just given where, given where corporate fundamentals and margins are, are, are headed. Yeah, so what, what we're seeing is some of the emerging markets, Dubravko, is that on top of the classic monetary cycle, which lifts uh, cost of capital, uh, the, the weighted average cost of capital for, for the equity market, is that once you have episodic credit events, the banks spread more, right, to compensate for risk. So it's a double whammy, right? So one is policy rates and the other one is the risk appetite from banks. Yes, and Pedro, what I'll say is people, you know, typically go to the S&P 500 and say, hey, look, there's no balance sheet problem. And that's correct. S&P 500 sits from, last I looked, at 85 to 90% of S&P 500 outstanding debt is fixed with a pretty long maturity. So there's no issue really there, not, not in the short term, right? 
But if you move down the cap spectrum and you look at mid caps, and especially if you look at small caps, Russell 2000, you're basically looking at 40% of the outstanding debt for small caps that's floating, floating. And many of the small cap companies that have reported during this earnings season, and that's not really getting a lot of attention, have actually been missing numbers because of higher and higher interest expense. And so that's what I'm saying. If you keep cost of capital elevated for longer, that's going to come back to bite us. And so it starts with small caps. And then the risk is that it sort of spreads to the rest of the market. Okay, Mislav, let's bring in China back to, to the equation here. So uh, how to express the view on China uh, with, within international equities here? So what are the bull and bear risks to highlight? And more broadly, do you see any catalyst for lasting emerging market south performance in your interactions? What kind of countries within EM do you get uh, interest on? Okay, okay, thanks. Uh, so, so just before the China, just like one sentence, because uh, Dubravko made a very impatient uh, and a very clear point. And I think this is the point that the the view in the last few months by the investors that we are moving away from the recession trade in the light of the fact, always a historic fact that impact of the past policy tightening takes time to impact the real economy between six and 24 months, depending on different models. So the belief that this is absorbed, this is behind us, the pain trade is done, the worst is behind us when the Fed is not even done tightening yet is, 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 is a big ask. It's a big ask to put it mildly. So I think everything that he said, I, I think it's, it's very, very pertinent and very valid because the market is now running on hope. Six months ago, everybody was bearish and convinced it's going to be a recession and pricing was different and it was right then to be more optimistic. But now the view is, well, we are past the policy impact when it's still ongoing. So, so, so that's the issue. So, so that's one, and I think it's a very, very fair point that all of these that were made. And then China, how does the China fit into this picture and the overall, um, you know, the view simply last August, September, last August, September, India was trading at two and a half times the PE multiple of China, not two points higher, two, three points higher, two and a half times the PE. And um, every single China data point was awful, minus 70% new floor space started. Obviously, iron ore price was 80. And uh, it, it was no hope, huge discount because everybody was buying India or Saudi or, or Brazil at the time and, and, and shorting and bearish on on, on China and, 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 and therefore there was a very interesting opportunity. I don't think it lasts for much longer. Um, you know, dollar peaking as inflation peaks is a hugely a help for EM. So you and me talked about it, you know, forever, many times. And, and you know, to have a bullish call on EM, generally you need dollar to be flat or down. And generally you would need Fed not to hawkish or surprise you on the hawkish side. So, so I think you know, in Q4, you had China reopening ahead of you, extremely easy comps, uh, past policy easing, which didn't track into the real economy because of the 
obviously lockdowns and 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 a, and a very low levels of pricing. Um, so where are we uh, with that now? I think the risk here is that people mistake China acceleration based on base effects. Simply, you know, it's a pent up demand. China was shut down and it's reopening and you have Q1 and Q2, 10% real GDP growth, maybe in Q3 as well. But the risk is that that doesn't morph into a fundamental story because when global investor is bullish on EM or bullish on this, like in 2003, 2004, like in 2009, 10, like in 2016, 17, the view was okay, everybody was too bearish on EM and China had a credit issue or housing issue or inventory issue or currency depreciation issue or everybody was just too negative and China pumped and drove the next up cycle because there was a real acceleration in investment. And my concern is, and we have been bullish on this China reopening and more positive on EM versus DM, but for this year, we have actually a neutral view on EM versus DM. And actually so far, you know, so good on that EM is up three, DM is, is up more so far. Um, the, the problem is that, that there is not much beyond simply base effects normalization that yeah china was shut and it reopens and uh, and and you play it in a usual way iron ore price has gone from 80 to 120 and copper price above 9000 and china pmis goes from 45 to 55 but it's a couple of quarters and the question is in second half of this year are you going to see the next leg which is the china easing produces the fixed asset investment acceleration the property market new uh, home starts and all of this or none of that happens. So that's my worry. So, so, so the, the worry is that you have had the good event and the market responded in commodities, in MSCI China is up 50% and all that. And that's probably not done yet. It's too quickly to be fully done. But is this a 12, 18 months view because it's, it is followed by fundamental fixed asset investment? Is this a 12, 18 months view because it's followed by the dollar you know, weakness? And, and, and then the, the point of the Dubravka that basically you know, the bearish call is interesting because yes, recession I think is under appreciated now, but if it's not a recession, maybe Fed is gonna be higher for longer and maybe has to really go to six or higher. And therefore the dollar, people are now short dollar again, the dollar could be actually up. So to have a sustained EM outperformance beyond the flows, beyond the valuations where I fully appreciate you made the great points on that, I think one has to have some kind of a view that China property market, and I'm not even talking about geopolitics and all that, you know, so six months ago, everybody was super scared about Taiwan, and now it's not an issue, but as the Bravo said as well, this is in the background, not improving, and actually geopolitics is not clearing, whether it's Russia or China, and all of those could be a curveballs which are negative, but you have to have some view that the property market on a 12, 18 months view is, uh, support or in the up cycle you know you definitely have to have some kind of a view that chinese policy maker will be pushing through stronger um, uh, fixed asset investment side because consumer normalization i don't think it's enough to drive everything else and and i think you should have some kind of a view for sustained eml performance beyond valuations beyond flows yeah, the dollar and Fed will play ball at least because we have not seen, you and me have not seen many EM rallies which last 
in a strong dollar regime. So the EM outperformed in the last three months or, or in Q4 because China reopened and the dollar fell since October. If the dollar does not play ball, it might be a bit tricky. Thank you very much, Mislav. So Dubravko, I'm, I'm getting a few questions via email here on uh, sectors style. So let, let me bring this uh, up to you now, right? So, and I'm gonna package those questions into a broader topic, which, which are inflection points, right? So first one, any views for the dollar, which is a tough one. The other one is uh, growth that derated significantly or value, does it have legs? And the last one in this bucket of client questions is sectors to highlight. So which ones do you like best or like least uh, for the year? So, I mean, on the dollar side, yeah, I think it's a very tough question. Um, I would be surprised to see the dollar collapse. Let me put it this way. So I do think that the dollar does continue to have some form of structural bid. Uh, for a number of different uh, reasons. Uh, I still think that just very simply put the US consumer versus the international consumer, um, you know, maybe ex China, let's say, is still in a somewhat healthier um, spot. And thus, I think the US fundamental backdrop, backdrop I think, continues to show um, resiliency. Uh, cost of capital and rates domestically and the Fed, I think, continues to sort of lead the curve. Um, and then I think you have this whole question mark around geopolitics, and I think all of that likely is going to continue to uh, keep some form of bid for the dollar. So that doesn't mean that the dollar necessarily has to go back to the highs it was at sort of four or five months back, but I, I, I would have a hard time. I don't see why necessarily the dollar would significantly fall from, from the current level. So let's say some form of range bound. Um, so now uh, questions on, you know, your, your kind of questions on um, uh, styles and growth versus value. Um, growth versus value is one of my favorite topics. Uh, and I feel like we've studied it quite extensive, but at the same time, I'll tell you, honestly, I have a very, very hard time coming up with style calls in the current environment. And that's why we haven't really published that much in it. The reason is because there's so much, so many of these styles have become mixed. Like on the value side, historically, there was a very clear cut value, uh, sort of segment of equities that now has gotten mixed. You have various parts of tech and some actually relatively decent parts of tech that have become valuish in nature. On the growth side, uh, you know, the energy, which historically was definitely not growth, not in the recent years, has become growth. So I have a very hard time sort of saying value versus growth. What instead I like to talk about is cheap versus expensive or call it long duration versus short duration. And our, our view for pretty much all of last year um, has been in favor of sort of short duration versus long duration, uh, in favor of cheaper assets uh, versus the more call it expensive assets and the assets that tend to be more sensitive to higher rates or higher real rates. And I think that's broadly speaking in line with everything that Mislav talked about in terms of international versus the US. Uh, and I think Europe definitely has benefited uh, you know, on that side. So I would still be of that view. So for as long as the fundamental side remains resilient. And for as long as the cost of capital part of the equation remains resilient and elevated, I, I, I just don't think that expensive assets um, will be able to sustainably, if you will, outperform. So I would be in favor of cheaper assets. 
So one little data point I would throw out there again, we, 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 we've been very vocal on energy, a little bit less so now because we think the risk reward is no longer as, 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 as sort of uh, compelling. Um, but like energy was 2.7, of the S&P 500 benchmark uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, and that's now risen up to about 5.5%. And there's no reason why energy can't slowly get back up to that average 8 9% and take away 2 3% from, from, let's say, the broader tech uh, or communications complex, right? So that's kind of the rotation that we've been calling for. And I do think that rotation was quite fierce and aggressive last year because of rates shooting up at a sort of unprecedented pace. I think that rotation still has legs and continues to run its course at a slower pace right now. But nonetheless, that's the direction of travel until you get to bigger signs of recession, in which case some of these call it cheaper assets, including some of the more cyclical areas like energy, could at that point temporarily get, 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 get sort of hit, hit harder. Uh, so that's what I would sort of say in terms of styles. Um, this year, it hasn't really been about market going up. Like I said, market has actually been flat uh, and it's down versus December 1st. It's really been about factor moves and specifically momentum, right? So momentum has gone through a pretty massive crash in the first few weeks of the year, um, which has corresponded with unprofitable junk, low quality outperforming, um, high quality, profitable, low volatility, lower beta trades, right? But I, like I said earlier on the call, I wouldn't be chasing that and I would be going back into that old momentum play. Why? Because I simply do not buy into a birth of a new cycle when the Fed is simply not done uh, hiking. And for that, I think you would really need to start to see easier and easier policy, not a pause, but like a proper pivot and, and sort of cuts. Uh, in terms of sectors, healthcare is the one that I would sort of throw out there. Utilities, um, I think has pulled back a decent amount on the back of rates moving higher. I kind of like the risk reward a little bit here. So some of these defensive plays. Um, and then also I would say, you know, within tech, I have a lot of sympathy for a higher quality, uh, stronger balance sheet, uh, secular growth name uh, versus junk that retail has basically been chasing recently. So that's another call of pair trade that, that I would frankly uh, be considering. Uh, and then the other thing I would throw out there, you know, just going back to some of your questions around US or DM versus EM versus China, like one trade I like is selling calls, selling calls, selling upside on, you know, on, on S&P and selling puts on something like China domestic equities. I think that's a pretty attractive uh, uh, relative value play. And again, why do I say, say sell calls, sell puts? because then have time work in your favor. It's very hard to sort of time when the market crashes and so forth. And in the meantime, you can continue to collect, I think pretty, pretty good, pretty good carry, um, pretty good premium. Thank you, Dubrav. Let me answer another question before moving to Mislav. Within EM, um, we are exposed to those sectors um, that depend less on CapEx more on a good balance between say consumer demand and, 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 and corporate uh, activity. Because the bulk of the China growth that you're gonna see for this year, next year, is gonna be domestic consumption, right? So out of, out of the 6% GDP growth we forecast for next year, 4.7 is the contribution uh, from domestic consumption, right? Mm -hmm. uh, CapEx or investments, it's only 1.7. 
and net trade is a negative 0.4.5. So with Inium answering this client question, we are overweight uh, tech, physical tech, I would say. So semiconductors, tech hardware. So it's a little bit of the, on the restocking story for China. We are overweight consumer discretionary. So that's the reopening uh, 101. Um, we are overweight. We prefer energy versus materials because we see on energy a, a better split between uh, consumer demand, whereas the materials is mostly corporate capex. And we have uh, also an overweight in financials. So let me jump back to Mislav. So Mislav, can you quickly mention uh, your sector positioning for, for your geography? And then uh, explore a little bit what are you learning so far from the earnings uh, uh, season and outlook for, for equities? Is this a big tail risk, negative tail risk? And the biggest uh, reverse of that, the biggest opportunity that you see for, for global equities this year. Okay, so thanks for that. So, uh, you know, very bullish on value versus growth last year. We closed that in October when we closed the underweight on tech. I do think that this year it's a transition year. Value will not be able to, to, to work and you can't be really short growth or tech anymore. And probably you need to go out, right? Underweight value. And, um, you know, we had in the last... Well, in the whole of last year, people who were bearish thought they're going to make money being defensive. And the last 12 months, yes, the markets, some of the markets were down nicely, like S&P 500. Some of them were not down at all, like UK. But what worked was the value and the defenses all were tricky. In the US, is a bit different. But in Europe, if you look at it, I mean, Every single defensive, utilities, telecoms, real estate, staples, even healthcare, which should have been a shoe-in with a stronger dollar, with China weakness, which is you know defensive, it did not outperform the market. So I think there is this great opportunity that investors are playing in the last six months, new cycle restarting. And uh, the pain is behind us, new cycle is restarting, which is interesting because to have a new cycle, you need to have a reset. We're not even talking about Fed or pivot or yield curve or money supply or QT, which we didn't touch on at all, but you need to have a reset on earnings and labor markets and credit markets. So to have a new cycle starting from this level of profit margins is interesting and, and therefore a bit trickier than normal. Um, so I think there is a great opportunity to, to take advantage of this very weak performance in the last seven or eight months. I mean, utilities in Europe were awful, healthcare awful. You know, we are still short staples and real estate, but I think you need to be lowering the beta of your portfolio. Now, when the market is resilient still and strong and people are in hope mode, you cut your beta. I think you should probably even go underweight financials, which we liked for the last two years. Even commodities are, 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 are looking uh, tricky so to get a bit more defensive and what did we learn from reporting season margins are going down margins are going down number one number two for the first time ever the earnings are not inflecting higher usually what always happens is the companies kind of massage the numbers they you know they kind of pre-worn or kind of um, you know lower the bar and then surprise really positively and the earnings number goes up 
there is no move like that. For the first time, uh, the earnings delivery post the reporting season is done is actually continuing to go down. So I think this is the question. Um, um, are you starting from a right starting point of the earnings when the profit margins are weakening from a record high level and some of the pricing power could be uh, uh, weakening? But uh, in the last 12 months, people who wanted to be bearish and they were like, everybody wanted to be bearish, they didn't really, you know, positioning uh, performance was not defensive. It was value and technology did badly, but value really worked. And I think therefore there is this opportunity that that can actually only play out still ahead of you. And that's what I think, um, um, you know, you could be doing um, before people go back into the recession trade, because obviously by the time people are back into recession trade is going to be too late, but but you do it while there is this hope period that everything which is bad is behind us. And that's why my view is Q1 marks the peak and you lower the value factor and you lower your beta factor of your portfolio. Does it mean that you need to be short international? As, as I said at the beginning, maybe not. Do you need to be really long EM? And I appreciate your point, very clear, positive calls on the uh, drivers, some of the drivers in the EM, but you know, regionally is maybe a bit more, you know, mixed up now. But I think uh, directionally and in terms of the style and factors, uh, this is what we would do. Thank you. Let me answer another question here, and then quickly go back to you for a wrap up, uh, one minute wrap up to each of you. So, the question is how to use the risk budget within EM. So we, broadly speaking, we are using our risk budget to reinforce the, no, the non-consensus calls we have been carrying since uh, mid last year, which is to overweight China on growth acceleration to underweight India. The second risk budget is continue to overweight China suppliers, that is Brazil and Saudi, and to promote idiosyncratic changes here and there. So few. We have upgraded Thailand to overweight recently. That's on the China presumption of international tourism and the knock-on impacts that this will have on the local sentiment and private consumption. We continue to believe that India uh, should be an underweight market to hedge for the potential earnings growth disappointment and the elevated uh, risk of valuation derating, somewhat very similar to what happened to the S&P. We continue to see Brazil as an overweight market. You have the external drivers, EM disinflation, growth outlook, uh, the backdrop for effects carry. Domestically, the combination of weak growth and inflation lower will enable rate cuts, irrespective of political noise in our views. And, and, and the last argument, which is a humble one, is to pay respect to very large risk premium. So, Excessive risk premium usually leads to asymmetric return to risk. So Brazil is trading at six and a half times forward PE, two standard deviations below historical average. And on China, just stay the course, right? So I think most of the re-rating phase of the rally has happened. Now we have the EPS growth cycle, which is mid-tens for this year, next year, which will continue to support the market. With that, let me turn back to Dubravko for your 
one minute wrap up and next to Ms. Love as well. So to final messages to the clients, please. I mean, look, you know, kind of what we discussed, I think, like I said, risk reward to me, uh, just not compelling for the equity trade. I think the growth policy trade-off uh, is not in favor of equities. Uh, so I'm not saying that there that we need to see media downside, but I just think that the upside continues to remain limited, and that's why, in my in my view, the best case scenario that you can expect to play out is some form of chop range bound. I don't know between 42 and 38, or between 43 and 3600 on the S&P. I do think that equity multiples and rates remain disconnected, especially in the U.S. Um, and I do think there's a bit of a complacency building up uh, in terms of, you know, cost of capital, where it's going, and the potential fallout effects of that, uh, geopolitics that no one really asks about. Um, and, and I do think that positioning is definitely uh, building, and I'm not saying it's frothy, but it's building, and, and, you know, all you need is for a volatility spike, and a lot of what's been done to start to, start to get undone. So again, risk-reward to me, when you have 5% risk-free sitting next to you, is just not that attractive in the current backdrop, even if earnings are not horrible and they're not as bad as perhaps fear. I just don't think that's enough uh, at, this, at this moment. I think you need to see inflation come back under control in a more meaningful way. And I think you need to see not a pause, but an outright cut uh, in, in monetary policy and easing in monetary policy to be able to start making a case for a new business cycle uh, you know, emerging. Uh, I just don't buy the, the new business cycle thesis coming off of the current level of rates and and uh, and, and, and inflation. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Dubravko. Mislav, wrap up, please. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of these points I'm very much uh, in agreement with. Uh, you know, last summer, simply the hope from us was China does eventually reopen and Europe is not gonna freeze and inflation has always been, it always remains a lagging indicator of the cycle. The cycle weakens, inflation peaks. Um, and that helped us a lot. And you know, I thought still early in the year, you have the um, positioning uh, support and maybe people are kind of getting sucked in because the market's going up and volatility is down. So people feel they have a better release budgets to play. And there is, there is optimism, but the key angle here is to have a new cycle. You need to have a credit and liquidity cycle. And you, therefore you need to have a policy, not staying put, but pivoting. Um, you never had the trough for the Fed was done hiking and um, the policy works with a leg on the real economy and uh, with the liquidity and credit, uh, what it has done in the last years and in the last decade, it's, it could all be fine, but uh, this is a big ask. And, and, and the final one is the casualty of the peaking inflation is the peaking pricing power by the corporate. So I feel uh, still that like last year, markets are down, but international DM equities did well, and they have a yield support in terms of the two or three times the dividend yields, some of them of the US. So I don't think the easiest trade is to short international. Uh, I think regionally, still there are interesting opportunities relative to the US, but Q1 markets make a high for this year and take advantage of this incredibly strong rally. I mean, Caterpillar is at all time high. And now the view is, oh, but it's about energy transition and therefore 
these earnings are all fine. Many of these stocks are still cyclical and take advantage of this great cyclical rally, which we were hoping for in second half of last year, which, which is coming uh, through uh, to lock in and, um, and, and, and look for a proper reset. And I don't think this is going to be the first time in history when the yield curve is wrong. And every single time, every single time, I mean, 25 years now in JP Morgan, every time there is an explanation why this time around the yield curve will not work. It's either Japan is saving too much or there is a global liquidity glut or German bond yields are so low, so it's a carry trade into the US bond yield. So that's why the yield curve is inverted. Every single time, if you look at the research from all the sales side before, there is a reason why this time around is different. And we are now again in a situation where it's inverted. And now again, there is uh, so many reasons that people push, oh, it's pricing inflation going down rather than recession. Let's see. But so far, it has never been wrong. And I think it, there are some of these factors which, yeah, people dismiss them, but one needs to be careful. Thanks, Pedro. Thank you. So unfortunately, we have to wrap this up. Uh, this is what I have for this webinar today. We hope uh, you enjoyed it. If you have additional questions or would like to talk through any of these in more details, please feel free to reach out to any of us or to your JP Morgan sales representative. Thank you for joining and for appreciating my colorful background, asking you for voting JP Morgan five stars in the Latin American AI survey that is starting uh, this Monday. So thank you, Dubravka and Mislav, for joining. See you soon. This communication is provided for informational purposes only. Please read JP Morgan research reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, JP Morgan Chase, all rights reserved. <laughs>